Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Well, we've been looking at Advent together. You know, we have our Advent, Advent wreath and candles going, and uh, the idea of Advent for Christmas season is, is anticipation, looking forward, hoping for something, hoping for God to do something that he can do that we cannot do. We find ourselves in a, in a state of desperation. If we really listen to our hearts, we find ourselves longing. And what do we long for? We long for a mediator, and Jesus is the mediator. And what mediator means is it's um, to describe rather uh, commonly would, would be he's like an umpire, the ultimate umpire, and that is the person that stands between God and man. Last week we saw that part of the job description of a mediator is to come as a prophet, to speak for God to man so that we might know the things that are right and real and true, that we might know heaven's perspective, that we might understand eternal things. And he comes as, as a spokesperson. He, he's calling to us from God, and that's, what, that's how he mediates from God to man. We long for that type of mediation. But what about this most descriptive term about the nature of God and how we could possibly know him or see him? This this attribute of his that stands out above the others because the Bible says that God is holy. He is holy. And he is holy. And there's, there's no other time in the Bible where an adjective is used to describe God three times. And he says it again and again and again. And, and the holiness of God has to be dealt with by someone outside because holiness means perfection, absolute without any failing or lacking of anything. He's complete. A word is used sometimes in the Bible to mean complete. And sometimes it often means holy other. It means separate because it's, it's not like anything else. And if God is that way, and he is, right, that he's perfect and complete and, and distinguishes himself as holy other, we have to have someone that stands between us and because his perfection devours anything short of perfection. It's the nature of things. Nothing short of perfection can endure his presence. It is enveloped. It is is extinguished. It is inflamed. It's destroyed because that's what what holiness does. And so a priest, a priest, that's the other office of a mediator. That's the thing that we long for during Advent. A priest comes in and he says, wait, God, don't let your holiness destroy these people yet. I'll, I, can, I can hold you off. And if, if you look at holiness in the Bible, it's not difficult to go almost immediately to the way that our, our nation has had the experience of playing with nuclear weapons. In the early days, in the mid-1940s, we were uh, detonating these megaton 
bombs, whether atomic or, or uh, a hydrogen sort of explosion. And here's, here's, here's a picture of one. I mean, these, this is the biggest fleet that we have, these little bitty boats. These are cruisers and air, aircraft carriers, and they're dwarfed in comparison to the size of the mushroom cloud. And then the hydrogen bomb is dropped, and now we have a mushroom cloud on top of a mushroom cloud. But what is especially entertaining to me is in the early days when we were uh, igniting these in the deserts of New Mexico and Arizona, we would put men in little ditches, just little foxholes, and put little, little helmets on top of them and say, not to worry, you know, it's only probably a 20-kiloton weapon, and you're going to hear an explosion when you do. You can, you can look up, and you'll, you'll see that explosion. You'll be hit by a breeze, not to worry, that's radioactivity that's going to rearrange your entire genetic pattern. And if you look at some of this early footage, these men, just the breeze goes by them. No, I'm sorry, through them. And then they run towards the radioactivity because we didn't know what we were doing. We had no concept of the power of radiation. And these men, because of ignorance, paid. You can see that sort of thing happening with the holiness of God in the Bible. If you look at Leviticus, for example, chapter 10, this is why some people don't read the Old Testament is because people are cavalier with, with the radioactivity of God's holiness. The, the first family, Moses, his big brother Aaron, were at the pinnacle of, of the hierarchy of knowing God. And Aaron's sons uh, Aaron was the high priest, the oldest brother in the family. He was the high priest, and he was delegating to his younger sons, or his, his two oldest sons, to take over uh, their right, being in that lineage as priests. And they became careless with the holiness of God. They were vaporized. They were killed immediately. I mean, graveyard dead. Now, that's rather startling when you read it in the passage, but what's especially astonishing is that when Moses is told to tell his older brother Aaron of the death of his two sons, he says this, don't you even grieve. Not a hair, not one hair is to be misplaced on your head. We will not have a, a memorial service for them. We won't bury them. We are taking up camp and moving on. We don't need that kind of foolishness in our camp. God is holy. And anyone that heard any story of what happened to Aaron's sons were afraid. That's what it's like to have an acquaintance with God. And so you can see why we would long for a priest who would stand between God and man and hold him off to somehow protect us from the holiness of God. When we long for a, uh, a mediator, we long for a priest. And if you, if you wanted to look in, a, in the Bible to learn about the holiness of God, what book do you think you'd go to? Any, any idea? It's in the Pentateuch. It's Leviticus. Leviticus is not a book very many people read, and fewer people read it twice. And the reason is, is because that book is about the holiness of God. It is about how to have a, a, an encounter that you can survive with this God that's set apart. And so the word holiness, or some derivative of the word holiness, is used 119 times. Almost 120 times, some expression of God's otherness and his, his, 
there's no words. And so they use words like holy and holiness. And then a hundred words are used to describe how we should be separate or sanctified or set apart for him. And so not to do things like other people do with, with, with false gods. And even, even in that separateness, some, some of those things, when you read them, they're just common hygiene issues. They're just simple things that you and I do as mammals. And by doing, participating in these events that we do daily sometimes, God says, well, you're not qualified. You're too animal. You're just a mammal today. And so we, you're not qualified to do some of the rituals that are explained in the book of Leviticus. If you look at the book of Leviticus, again, it's this book that says this is early on, it's one of the first five books, right? This is what God is like and how you might be able to have an audience with him. The zenith, in my opinion, the zenith of that book is in Leviticus chapter 16, and it talks about what's called the Day of Atonement. And it's the whole chapter is dedicated to a one-day event where all things are kind of made right for a year. And listen, if there is the saying, um, a picture's worth a thousand words, there's a word that's worth a thousand pictures, and it's the word atonement. Now, just to help you understand what the word means, it doesn't literally mean this. You can break the word up, and it says at one meant, right? This is what it takes to get at one with God. But the word literally means to pay for. It means you have bills to pay, and on this day, Day of Atonement, those bills will kind of... Well, you know what? Actually, the bills don't get paid. The interest does. Just the interest. And it buys you another year. But your principal has never been dented yet. It means to pay for a debt that you owe. And it's a rather elaborate, elaborate experience. I'll go through that in just a minute. But, but it's an annual event because, again, it doesn't pay the principal. So the last verse in chapter 16 says this. Um, for it is on this day that that day of atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you, and you shall be clean, clean for all your sins before the Lord for a year. Now, day of atonement, we know it probably because we know, we know a little Hebrew. You don't know that, but you do. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. Now, if you want to understand how Jesus is ooh, a priest, you have to understand the Old Testament expression of Yom Kippur and the high priest's job description in that. And then what we're going to do is we're going to look at how Hebrews, a New Testament book, interprets how Jesus fulfills the longing for that high priest. So what I'd like to do today is instead of reading through Leviticus chapter 16 so that you would better understand Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the day that we're paid for, and how Jesus fulfills that, I'm going to just do it for you. I'm going to explain it, do it for you, and then we're going to jump to the book of Hebrews and we're going to see, now wait a minute, how is Jesus a fulfillment of those promises, okay? So that's what we'll do. Let me just tell you about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's, it's done in the temple tabernacle originally and then later on in one of the temples. And it, actually, our sanctuary is, is built somewhat like that, and so it'll help you visualize it. Outside in the lobby and even outside under the oak trees, that would be called the Court of the Gentiles, the Court of Women, and they could stay there. And then inside, as we get closer to the, the temple itself, there would be a courtyard area, walls all around us, and it would be like coming in these, there's two doors, that we'd come in these two doors, and this bottom part for us would be the court of the Israelites, okay? And in the court of the Israelites, there'd be a, a giant, I don't know, a cauldron or, or tank for cleansing ourselves over here, and dead center in the middle would be a very large uh, 
place to, off, to offer sacrifices, right? An altar, right in the middle. I can't go there, and it's a little bit difficult, but I'll, I'll kind of put that over here if you would. And then there would be a wall here, and this would be the very beginning of what is, what is the temple. So there'd be an enclosed structure. They'd walk up a few steps, and the first part that dominates the uh, square footage was called the holy place. And in the holy place, there were multiple utensils to be used. I can't go into the details of the utensils that will be used out here and in here, but the one that, I, the one that really matters uh, in the holy place would, will be this, and it will be a place for incense. Now, as you, again, as you go farther and farther into the holy place, you get to a giant curtain. And behind that curtain is the most holy place. It's called the Holy of Holies. And no one was to ever go back there except for one time a year during the Day of Atonement, and it, was, it had to be the high priest. Because behind that giant curtain, which would be probably about where our archway is, you can easily visualize it where our curtain is, but behind that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you know what the Ark of the Covenant is because you've seen the movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, thank you, Steven Spielberg. And there was actually a fair amount of truth to that. Don't look inside. Don't look inside. Because inside the Ark of the Covenant contained three things. And those three things were all provisions by God which man rejected. And so those three things actually act as an expression of God's grace, but also our judgment. One of the things that's in there is uh, the tablets that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. Those were a gift from God. They told us how to relate to God and how to relate to each other. And yet none have ever kept them. We don't care about how to treat each other, and we don't care about how we should love the Lord our God first and foremost and not use His name in vain. And so they are inside that ark. Uh, that's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant. That was the covenant piece, those two tablets. Also, what's in there is, what's, is Aaron's rod. Aaron walked around. He, these guys were shepherds and great hikers, if you remember. And Aaron's rod was uh, an icon of his authority the authority that was gifted by God to the people so that they would be safe. Follow your leaders. You'll be safe. I speak to them and just follow them. And there was a mutiny. Of course there was because whoever God puts in charge, we want to rebel against. And there was an actual situation where um, God miraculously, miraculously caused Aaron's bud to, to bloom, to become alive again, to prove that he was still God was still with Aaron, and yet the people still mutinied. God's provision for leadership and mankind's rebellion against that. And the last thing is this jar of manna, and manna was the way God provided for them uh, for their food. Uh, it was supposed to be maybe a month's trip to the promised land, but because of, again, their acts of lack of faith and rebellion against leadership, they spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering, and during that period of time, they needed food, and every day, well, six days out of seven, God would provide manna. Manna literally means, it translates, what's this? Because every day the people would go out and they go, what's this? It was mostly like oatmeal, and they would have this provision every day. They could be fed every day. And the people said, is that all? That's it? I mean, really? Daily bread? Daily bread. That's all we get. And so they rebelled against God's provision. So just in summary, they rejected God's provision for them. They rebelled against God's authority, and they completely ignored God's rules. These are all contained in the ark, God's gifts and our hatred towards those gifts. And on top of that, to seal the ark was called the mercy seat or the seat of atonement, the seat to get things paid for. And it covered those things, and these 
seraphim, these angelic beings, are looking over and some of their, their wings are covering their eyes and the other ones are covering the, the, the cover of the ark itself because judgment. These are, these are things that justice has to be dealt with in these areas of God's mercy being rejected. So, point is, that's the real estate, that's the building, that's what it looks like for us. On the, that's what they dealt with, you know, whether it was a tabernacle when they were roaming around or a temple in, uh, when they settled in Jerusalem. And then one day a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, this whole area would be cleared out of all the men and the priests, this area of the, the court of the Israelites. And then I would, I'm going to be that person, I'm going to be, I'd have to be in the right family tree, and I would come in and I would be the high priest, and I would bring in five animals, two goats, two uh, rams, and uh, a young bull. And I would bring all of those in, and I would be in my high priestly garments. It would be extravagant, breathtaking. I would have a headpiece and a, a, a robe on and then a breastplate over that that would have jewels for each of the 12 tribes. But on this day, I would come over here, and I would take off my high priestly garments. I'm going to put that right here. Because I would have to take a bath in this, using this big tub of water. And I would take off all of my clothes, and then I would change into nothing but white linen. My undergarments, my outer garment, I'd have a white turban on. And what scholars will tell you is they say that when man comes to represent God as a prophet, he will come in the splendor of a king. But when man goes before God... He'll be nothing but a peasant. And so the linen is supposed to represent purity. It'll be white linen and also simplicity that (laughs) what are we going to bring to impress him? Nothing. So I take a bath. I change clothes. I come over here. I bring the bull up onto uh, the altar. I slit its throat. I get up a bowl full of its blood. And then I come up here. I'm going to need to wash for myself and my family's sake. I'm going to have to go into the holy place, and then the holy of holies. Oh, I can't go into the holy of holies because if I see it, I could die. And so I'll leave the bowl here, and I'll throw some incense on these hot coals. Remember I told you the incense stand is here, and it will fill the room with smoke. And I'll take some of that incense, and I'll go ahead behind that curtain and leave it there, hoping that the room would fill so full of smoke that I would be blinded from seeing the ark, lest I envision God in his splendor and be struck dead. When enough time has passed, I'll take the bowl now of the bull's blood, and I'll go back to the mercy seat and splash on it seven times, the perfect number, the complete number. Hopefully, that that blood would cover the vision of those seraphim so that they couldn't see the sin for me nor my family, and I could be safe to continue the ritual of the Day of Atonement. Now, that's what would happen once a year, every year, just to get me right, the high priest. If you go fast forward and you see in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 7, it says all of this that we're talking about was a shadow. He uses the word. Lewis didn't come up with that. It's the shadow of things that are true and are real. And Jesus was the fulfillment of these shadows. They were his shadows being cast. And the real things took place when Jesus was the high priest. But 
when Jesus was the high priest, it says in Hebrews chapter 7, such a high priest meets our needs, the one who is holy and blameless and pure and set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Sure, unlike any other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed, he sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. When Jesus came as the high priest, he didn't need a bull offering because he was sinless. Just thought I'd make that distinction because now that I've made my sin offering for myself and my family, I can make a, a sin offering for the people. And so I will take the two goats and I'll take them up. And I, it would be down here, but for the sake of visibility, I would draw lots and the winner, the winning goat gets to die because the losing goat has to suffer. So the winning goat is chosen to die, and he'll be a sin offering, and I will take him back to the altar, and I'll slit his throat, and I'll get a bowl of his blood, and I'll come back to the holy place, to the holy of holies, and I'll sprinkle again seven times on the mercy seat to, to appease the transgressions against God. And then on my way out, now I'm backing my way out, I'm cleansing this whole holy place, the temple and the courtyard, I'm cleansing it so that we can use it again next year. And so seven times on the incense. Then I come down to the court of the Israelites and I combine it with the bull's blood and I mix that together and I am covering that altar. They have four kind of posts on each of the corners. Those are called horns and I'm rubbing those down and I'm spreading this everywhere. It's like a Clorox ammonia mix to cleanse all the sin out. And if you see in verses, chapter 16, verses 16 through 18 or so, it uses the word transgressions and rebellions and sin and all these descriptive words that are being dealt with. Cleansed. Now, what do you think I look like at this point? Spraying and splattering all this blood on this white linen garment. Oh, I take the other goat. And it's the only time the word is used in the Bible. It's used several times in the chapter. We call it the scapegoat. It's, in Hebrew, it's Azazel. And they don't know how to translate it so much as it means to be utterly decimated. It means to be taken away forever. And as the high priest, I would put my hands on the head of this goat, and I would confess all the sins and the transgressions and inadequacies and the forgetfulness of the nation of Israel onto this goat. And then I would take a scarlet rope and I would tie it around the horns of this scapegoat, and I would turn that goat over to a righteous man who would come, one of the righteous leaders, and he would take him outside the city as far away as possible. Sometimes there would be 10 stations to feed and um, hydrate this righteous man, not the goat, so that he would go as far as possible, leave him in a gorge to die a painful excruciating, lonely, dreadful death. Sin had to be taken away. Now, that that's done, and the place is cleansed, I can offer sacrifice. 
I have two more animals left. I have uh, two more goats. And so I take one, I'm sorry, I come over here. I take a bath in this water. I pile up these old bloody clothes now. Put on my priestly garments. Now that things are ready to go again. I take the ram. I put the ram up on the altar. I slaughter the ram. It's a burn offering. It's a celebration offering. You'll be with us another year? Promise? Then I take the other ram and put it up on that altar and I slit its throat for my people as an act of celebration and worship, a burnt offering. But what to do with this? The old clothes. So then it says, uh, towards the end of chapter 16, that we take the old clothes and put them on that altar and we gather the carcass of the bull and the carcass of the two rams and a and and carcass of the goat, and we have another righteous person come in, and he takes those far out of the city to burn, to completely extinguish. And then, and then the righteous man who took the scapegoat away, he comes back, he changes clothes and, and bathes himself, and they take those clothes and burn it in that pile of the, uh, that heat pile. And then, wait, 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 the gentleman that's in charge of burning everything. He takes a bath, he changes clothes, and they burn all of his things. Everything that's been remotely related to this experience has taken what was touching them, has been taken far out outside the city gates, and is burned. Sound like overkill? It's only because we are flipping about sin. We have indiscretions. We uh, kind of lost ourselves. It was in a moment of weakness. That's not the way God looks at things. That's not what the Day of Atonement is supposed to picture for us. So, what would it be like to have all of this done for us by Jesus the Christ. On the Day of Atonement. I mean, the real Day of Atonement was Good Friday. It was when Jesus died and played the part as the scapegoat and the ram, right? And, and, the, and the other goat that was slaughtered. And on that day, on the Good Friday, two things happened on the real Day of Atonement that has never happened before and will never happen again. And this is important because God was trying to send us, you and I, a, a, a message that's unforgettable and extremely vivid because he wanted us to see what was real, not in the shadows anymore. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, that curtain was torn, and it was torn from the top down. You and I can try to get back there by tearing that, but we can never get it started, and it's a good thing. But it says in the Gospels that the curtain was torn from the top down because God was saying, we can see each other again. His blood has covered you. I can't see the sin anymore. And listen, it is not as though, this is important, you need to know this. It is not as though the radioactivity of God's holiness was diminished in the least what happened was the blood of Christ covers us and allows us to endure it. God cannot 
not will not, he cannot lower his standards of perfection for intimacy. And so he made it right, he covered us, and then he opened the curtain. The second thing that happened on Good Friday, it's never, it's never happened before and it will never happen again, is that the high priest, he sat down. Because everything was done. The bill was paid. The principle was finally erased. We were complete, and it is finished. So, how should you then live? For 1,800 years, if they participated in it, they would be longing for that day of atonement, that it would be made real. And here's what happens when people understand the sacrifice of Jesus and the reality of that. First is they hope well. They hope well. Aristotle said that hope is a waking dream. Listen, Hope is a waking dream. You know when you dream at night and you go, good night, that was the greatest dream in my life. I can't believe that. And then you wake up and you go, oh, that's too bad. Aristotle says hope is when you're walking around carrying that with you. Look what Hebrews says about this waking dream. Hebrews uh, chapter 6, verse 19. Now we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. What's an anchor for? To keep you steady in a storm. What do you use as an anchor for your soul? Your good works? You being better than the guy down the row from you? Really? Because, because the writer of Hebrews says, listen, you remember the Day of Atonement? We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Now we know what that means. He entered the Holy of Holies, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become our high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's not even from the family tree of Aaron because that's not good enough. He's from this other family tree, from this gentleman in the Old Testament that Abraham bumped into named Melchizedek, and that name literally means the king of righteousness. And Jesus is from that lineage. That's how he gets to be a priest. And he went before us so that we would be, we'd have an anchor for our soul. What happens when you have such great you know, hope? You, you live differently. You can, you can do the commandments of God, and they're not burdensome to you. Have you ever, have you ever been so in love with someone because of what they've like done for you, that you'd do anything for them. Love and gratitude, it will take you places that duty will never take you. And if you, if you, if you can conceptualize that you were, were rescued from a last-minute execution, and it was a one-time deal that paid all of your debts, wouldn't that cause you to be motivated intrinsically to live an entirely different life? Absolutely. In, in some circles, it's called the exchanged life, and what that means is Jesus exchanged your sin. Well, that was a good gift to give him for his righteousness. And knowing that it, it, 
it changes, well, it changes everything, if you hope well. The second thing you should be is confident. You should be absolutely confident that you're clean because it's done. Because look at all that happened to make that work right. And again, you go to the book of Hebrews, and it tells us how to make sense out of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, how to bring Yom Kippur into the events that Jesus participated in. And chapter 10 says, therefore, brothers, look at, look at how there's so much confidence in this phrase. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Okay? What Jews feared to think about would be going in here and then behind that curtain. He says this, we have confidence to go to the most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way that was opened to us through the curtain that was his body. His body was torn open for us. And since we have a great priest over, our, over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart and full, what? Assurance, full assurance. Let us draw... What do we get? 19, 20, 21, 20, lead to 22. What do you get? What's God saying? Draw near to me with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having bodies washed with pure water. (laughs) Don't hang your head going into the presence of God. How dare you? How dare you? I know it makes perfect sense to be afraid of the presence of God or to wonder. But think about what, what's really happened. He's saying, look, uh, it says in Ephesians 4, talking again about this very thing, about confidence. He's saying, we don't have a priest that can't relate to us. We have a high priest that has endured everything exactly like us, well, except that he never sinned. And then it says, so approach the throne of grace and mercy. What kind of throne? A throne of grace and mercy with confidence because Jesus will intercede for you. So the, the point is, you know, some, some of you in here, you, you wash your hands like Lady Macbeth, you know? And you, and you, you, live, you live in the shadow of past sins and the whole experience that, that the Day of Atonement that Jesus endured for us is to give you the freedom and the confidence to say, I, I'm going to walk up there without stuttering with my shoulders back and my head up because I am covered in the sprinkling of his blood. You should hope right. You should have confidence. And the last thing you should do is relax. You should relax. It's done. It's, it's, it's just absolutely completed. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 says, Day after day, every priest stands, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. It only helps with the interest payments. But when the priest, this priest, Jesus, had offered, was offered up for all time, one sacrifice for all of sins, paying even the principal, he sat down at the right hand of God. It doesn't, it doesn't just say he sat down. It says he sat down at the right hand of the Father. This is a seat of authority. It is the seat of power. And he's done. 
He's not standing, giving more sacrifices year after year. It's, it's, as, it's as though he overpaid. And what is he doing sitting here? What is Jesus doing sitting and waiting? He's waiting for justice. It says so in the very next verse that he is just waiting to make all things right. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to made into his footstools because by one sacrifice, he was made perfect forever for those who are being made holy. This chair is very comfortable. It just needs one thing. Some enemies to rest my heels on. No. He's also sitting here, it says, to intercede for us. He speaks to the Father for us. Wait, he, okay, let me tell him. Look, what is, I'm just going to Hebrews. I'm trying to, tell, I'm trying to show you what's happening in real life. 7, chapter, 20, chapter 7, verse 24. And because Jesus lives forever, I'm going to live forever. I'm sitting here. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to, him, come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. When John writes the people that are being persecuted unto death and they're having their doubts and they're giving up on faith and they're committing sins because of that, John writes this, My dear children, I write you this so that you will not sin. But listen, if, if, if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So, oh, you, again... You did that again. All the shame. I'll talk to the Father for you. The Day of Atonement, friends, was a hope in the hearts of so many thousands of people that you and I get to experience because Jesus did it. He did it for real. And so you don't have to live defeated. You don't have to live in the shadow of your sins. You don't have to live in, in the consequence of repetitious feeling as though you have worn down the grace of God because this priest is our priest and he has died on our behalf. And some of you, I know some of you, you've told me the stories. It's like, you don't know what I've done. And if Jesus were here, I mean, if he were here today, I think he would say something like this, sitting in this chair, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been because I've been through those doors and I've had my body torn in half so that curtain would open. And my body was taken outside the city gates, covered in nothing but linen like a poor pauper's clothing to die an excruciating, painful, lonely death. So... I am Jesus, so I know where you've been, and I know what you've done, but you've got to understand where I've been and what I've done. And then he sat down. So, who's your priest? Some of you still think that you're bringing something to the holy place. You know, you're going to church or you're helping people and all that's good, but it means nothing to God. He's looking to see if you're covered by the high priest's blood. 
If you've never made a particular decision where you say, I'm giving up anything except clinging to this thing that took place on Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, this, do that today. You do that today. Do you see? You, get, you, you bring nothing but sin to this, and you receive the righteousness of Christ. But for many of us, we know that, but we don't experience it. And so my challenge for you is that you would live with great hope. Would you live with this kind of overflowing understanding of the great exchange that's taking place, that you would be motivated primarily by gratitude, overflowing love, unquenchable joy? It's going to take you places you never thought you could go. You will take responsibility for things that you never thought you could admit to. You will care for people you don't even like. Try this. Just try this for this Christmas season. It is what your heart longs for. Let's, let's do that. Let's celebrate Advent. The coming of the great high priest. His name is Jesus the Christ. Dear Lord Jesus, um, you are our great high priest. You have done everything. You have cleansed us, and then you took sin far away from us, and then you sat down. There was, and so, there was nothing else to do or say. And so, God, I would ask that your spirit would help us understand that and grasp that so that we might enjoy it. And joy would be this marking attribute of what motivates us to do your will and it would not be a burden to us. Let us dance and hum and whistle and sing uh, to the, your glory and the joy of, your, of obeying your word. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.